paper is called Unnatural Feelings, the Effective Life of Anti-Gender Mobilizations. And it's based on an article that's just come out in Radical Philosophy, uh, which itself is um, based on an early version uh, that I gave at the European Journal of Women's Studies Conference at um, Gender Studies in Uppsala, Sweden in 2019, trying to begin to work out ideas that have adapted and changed as, as we know. We had already clocked him pacing at the back, a latecomer ill-fitting in the book-lined library white man in his 40s, baggy clothes, shaved hair and prominent facial scar jarring with the 120 groomed young people in the room, all facing forward, wrapped by Professor Kimberly Crenshaw's invocations to think and act intersectionally. He moves to lean on a pillar. My hackles rise, prickling down my spine. I tell myself that I've been working in an elite institution for too long and need to check my judgment. Those hackles go down a bit. I'm about to go and ask him if he'd like to sit down and join us when he starts to speak over Kimberly. Both she and I know he's not going to stop. It's hardly our first encounter with attempted silencing. The man speaks louder and so does Kimberly. His diatribe in Italian shows he isn't interested in dialogue her American tones echo behind me. I walk straight up the aisle to about a foot away from him and raise my hands. Please stop talking over our guest, please sit down. Then when he doesn't stop, please leave. He backs me up the way I've just come and I keep the same distance, the two speakers now in discordant unison. Please stop talking over our guest. Please leave this workshop. Please be respectful. Please leave. I manoeuvre him back up the aisle and he's shouting invective now. Dirty, ugly feminist. Shut up, ugly bitch. I don't really need the translation from Italian provided by students later. He's by the door he came in now and as I back him up through the door he grabs and twists my arm in a last ditch effort then turns and shouts his way out to be met by the security guards the PhD student stewards have already called. They wrestle him out of the building and we can hear his echoes for minutes after we can no longer see him. I'm shaking, Kimberly is shaking, students are shaking, some crying. Kimberly breathes in her experience of decades and breathes out the last 90 minutes of an extraordinary workshop. She opens herself to the students' shock and anger and knits their experience back together with the intersectional theory they have read and thought they would simply be asked to say something clever about. One student tells us about her fear that she would lose the hearing in her other ear, having lost it in one after being beaten by Hindu nationalists. Another whispers that she was looking for a table to hide under, as she had when that man came into the classroom and started shooting. We talk about our own privilege and this man's likely mental health issues, as well as the ways in which both anti-feminism has, ways in which anti-feminism has always exploited subjective as well as collective vulnerabilities. We make the transnational connections across forms of anti-feminist, racist, homophobic and transphobic violence and feel enraged at the possibility of our silence. We express feeling shame too that we could not effectively interrupt this man without passing him over to security. What were we waiting for? 
an institutional response, it seems, despite our collective schooling in the misogyny, classism and racism of institutions. This paper addresses the attacks on feminism and gender studies, LGBT movements and migrants by an increasingly virulent anti-gender ideology movement and asks after the best ways of grappling with the violence of these mobilizations at political, epistemic and collective levels. As is well documented, attacks on the concept of gender and on feminist, anti-homophobic and intersectional social movements are a central part of how right-wing populist agenda generates its appeal and furthers its aims. Gender ideology, or even the concept of gender itself, has been consistently set up as eroding family values, challenging the natural status of heterosexual gender roles and promoting perversion. Sonia Correa, David Paternot and Roman Kuha described these right-wing movements as operating at a transnational level, but focusing on national or local scales, bringing together homophobic campaigns in France, Germany and Brazil, the defense of sovereignty in Poland, Serbia and Hungary, and religious re-entrenchments in Costa Rica, Chile and Uganda. There have been consistent attacks on gender studies as a field in recent years too, with the closure of the degree at Central European University in Budapest, the attempted bombing at the National Secretariat for Gender Research at the University of Göteborg, and most recently the 2020 legislative move to ban gender identity studies in schools and universities in Romania. And both UK and US governments have recently stepped up new versions of the old culture wars that specifically identify gender studies, trans claims for legitimacy and racial and ethnic studies for particular derision. The aggression that characterizes this hostility is often also individually targeted and deeply personal. In Germany, for example, complaints seeking to remove gender studies teachers from the university were and remain vitriolic. In Hungary, Andrea Petto was subject to extensive harassment. In Brazil, feminists on university campuses endure consistent personal abuse, accused not only of violating nature, but exhibiting national betrayal in their adoption of foreign, quote unquote, terms of reference. In November 2017, while she was visiting <clears throat> Sao Paulo, right-wing activists burned Judith Butler in effigy, marking gender, homosexuality and Americanness as equally vile and subject to violence. And the dehumanizing viciousness towards trans women in particular has been well documented within this field. Anti-gender ideology proponents frame their own project as a moderate common sense one that protects natural sex roles and the relationship between family and nation. It is always others who are the aggressors, feminists who want to pervert the course of natural childhood and adult roles, queers who relish the destruction of the family and have no allegiances or ties, trans subjects who want to take over the terrain of ordinary women, or feminist claims to oppression and politics, and outsiders who cannot be trusted and are the agents rather than the objects of inequality. It is the gender ideologues and the perverse foreigners who are the hysterics, the ones who always go too far, the ones who have no core values. 
These framings are important as a way of deflecting or projecting aggression onto the targets of violence, of course, and are essential to both inflame anti-gender feeling as legitimate and its affective aggression as belonging to someone else. And it is the question of how best to counter these affective deflections and aggressions that I explore in this paper. One, we can certainly theorize the anti-feminism that campaigns against the invented phenomenon of a global gender ideology as a backlash against equality gains and a political mechanism to safeguard privilege or lament its perceived loss. Yet this anti-feminism is not entirely straightforward. In both its religious and political versions, anti-gender ideology activists cast themselves as on the side of women's equality and only antagonistic to a feminism that takes things too far, is too aggressively anti-family or imposes itself on specific, often global South, contexts. In making gender ideology into the enemy of ordinary men and women who want reasonable access to opportunity, relationships free from violence or other improved conditions within conventional family frameworks, anti-gender ideology proponents claim the very ground feminism has called its own. Once it has been established that gender ideology is what unites a range of challenges to the heteronormative modern family, claims for same-sex marriage, reproductive rights, sex education, trans recognition, or equal pay, being against it can be cast as a defense rather than an attack. In challenging the excesses of gender ideology then, anti-feminists can be reassured that they are resisting affronts to natural sex roles rather than refusing women's equality per se. Anti-gender discourse hinges on a utopian fantasy of a bankrupt present and future, one that can only be remedied by a return to the integrity of naturalized and complementary sexual difference as the conventional bedrock of the local and the national but with a twist. If women's subordination can be framed as something that has already been addressed, then a return to sex difference within a, within a heteronormative nationalist imaginary can be framed as opening up a future that occupies a sane middle ground. A return to sex complementarity is thus cast as the foundation of a local, regional or national future at direct odds with the bankruptcy of current global hegemony. Those who continue then to insist on excessive denaturing can be positioned as part of an apocalyptic drive to a non-reproductive barren future and can be belittled and discarded. Queer theorists like Lee Edelman, for example, or Lauren Ballant, uh, anticipated this kind of um, positioning of, of a queer challenge as, as part of barrenness. Feminism joins anti-racism and anti-disabilism in the bin marked political correctness and can thus be dismissed as absurd, even as it is framed as a serious threat. Key to the contrast made between the safety of heterosexual family and a corrupting gender ideology is where these come from and settle, as well as when they can be said to be appropriate. Anti-gender ideology arguments consistently construct gender itself as an import, a foreign interloper, as we saw in the Brazilian case, that challenges the time and place of family and nation. 
In France, gender is at once the enemy within that tears at the very fabric of the social dem sexual democratic contract and an exterior, usually US originating, threat to national security in the form of transnational politics and language. That foreignness does not have to come from a specific national context, though. It can also be positioned precisely as an empty signifier of the unreasonable demands of a transnational elite and the institutions that protect their interests. Thus, in Eastern Europe, gender is constructed consistently as an imposed transnational EU or neoliberal threat to national sovereignty, a threat that true Poles, Hungarians or Romanians can resist being subject to. In this respect, anti-gender ideology arguments suture naturalized heterosexual difference to nation, both as a return to the sanity of pre-political correctness and as a way of resisting global forces in a post-industrial, post-welfare, securitized world. To go back to the French context for a moment, if gender and homosexuality too are imports that threaten family and nation, then care must be taken to ensure that other threat to Frenchness, Muslim religion or identity, is also kept on the outside. This is where the sane temporality of equality becomes so important and why anti-gender ideology proponents need to claim that moderate ground. While gender ideology goes too far on the one hand, the patriarchal control of Islam threatens to pull us back into an excessive past. Here, of course, Frenchness is always already neither Muslim nor queer, and certainly never both. The externalization of gender in this European context then ensures that heterosexual difference is always secular and white, as well as quintessentially moderate. For Esther Kovacs, it's precisely the focus on an authentic womanhood that ties anti-gender to anti-immigrant narratives of the national modern. This modern woman is neither alienated from her true sex, she's certainly not trans, nor patriarchally subordinated to perverse Muslim maleness. And thus she is free to take up her natural role as her white heterosexual male partner's democratic complement. Importantly then, what we see consistently in right-wing anti-gender ideology arguments is an interweaving of naturalized gender with naturalized racial and religious difference. Naturalized sex, actually, with naturalized religious and racial difference. The claim that gender is a foreign import or the preserve of a transnational elite class is a tactic that follows the time-honored trick of blaming individuals or groups already viewed with suspicion or hostility for homegrown ills and the economic and social difficulties that attend globalization. And so it's perhaps not so surprising that it's the queer, the feminist and the migrant that become over associated with transnational elites and protection in anti-gender ideology discourse. While maleness, whiteness and heterosexuality are increasingly figured as bound to the local or the deflated national. So it is that white men emerge as under threat from progressive elites rather than imbued with power in their own right. They are the besieged, rather than the routine agents of misogynist, homophobic or racist violence. 
a final externalizing tactic that overlay, overlays space and time in anti-gender ideology discourse is the positioning of gender as a colonial term and its use as a continuation of lamentable imperialism. Citing Kovats, Corridor affirms that, quote, language equating gender ideology with colonization, imperialism, and unwanted cultural imposition has been another prevalent strategy for the global right, unquote. <clears throat> Kaoma writes that anti-gender arguments circulate in sub-Saharan Africa within a frame that portrays gender and homosexuality as neo-colonial imports and as the contemporary imposition of transnational elites. And in a rather different frame, gender ideology is cast as Western European in Poland or Turkey and thus corrupt or a-religious. On this broader scale then, sexual and gender challenges to heterosexual family are positioned as a malign import expressly designed to prevent the nation from reproducing itself, whether that nation is a Western one that struggles to retain its history or a post-colonial one that struggles to assert its freedom. As Correa points out, the harnessing of a decolonial discourse by anti-gender ideology, <coughs> religious, uh, family-oriented commentators who remain otherwise resolutely uninterested in anti-racist or decolonial politics is cynical at best. We might also want to point to the particular irony of critiquing feminists for their imposition of gender by those who seek to re-entrench naturalized categories of gender and sex that are the hallmark of a colonial endeavor. It is precisely those naturalized forms that are presented as the future, in other words, that have a violent and colonial past <coughs> linked to colonial administrations and the suturing of sexed and gendered difference to whiteness in coloniality that we live with. That future can only be rhetorically assured through displacement of its history onto contemporary feminists and queer subjects then, rather than the white heterosexual men and women who continue to benefit from its legacy. As Elsbieta Korolutz and Agnesa Graf highlight, it enables anti-gender ideology advocates to position themselves as, quote, protectors of the world's colonized peoples, the disenfranchised, and the economically disadvantaged, unquote. Disingenuous though such a move may be, this discursive framing of gender equality movements as powerful and foreign colonizers does in fact resonate with a white colonial uh, legacy within feminism that needs consistent attention and not just in the face of this new right-wing turn, though certainly that's another heightened reason. The violence of Western concepts of gender continues to delimit identity and perpetuate the epistemic violence of exclusion and inclusion. It's a sober truth that this accusation that gender is colonial is all the more available to the right precisely because of that history and indeed precisely because of the continued claims by some strands of feminism that women's freedom and equality are most compromised outside of the west or by queer scholars that gay and lesbian rights in their familiar western form are a sign of the modern that others must play catch up to emulate. Yet so too, it is feminist, queer and post or decolonial thinkers who have pointed out how the flames of the fantasies of a specifically Western gendered and sexual modern as guiding global progress narratives are fanned by national elites committed to maintaining established power relations. 
I'm thinking here of the important work by Rahul Rao on the citation of colonial imposition of gender binaries as both an important part of the history and present of power relations and simultaneously as a way in which contemporary investments in national gender and sexual inequalities are managed by powerful elites. In her intervention on anti-gender ideology and the Gulf region too, Noor Almazidi writes in a similar vein of the ways in which national sovereignty is consistently imagined at the expense of sexual and gendered minorities. For these theorists, as for Uma Narayan writing about India over 20 years ago, the externalization of gendered and sexual equality as a perverse imperial effect is one of the key ways in which progressive politics are foreclosed. We need then to wrestle with gendered and sexual complexity. We need to wrestle it back from the right-wing anti-gender ideology advocates, insisting on the duplicity at the heart of their co-optation on the one hand, yet paying close attention to the multiple ways in which gender travels with its historical and contemporary baggage of epistemological and deadly violence on the other. Two. Anti-gender ideology mobilizations are suffused with violence and a sense of entitlement, and yet their aggression is deflected through the logic of naturalized sex difference as under threat, as about to disappear without immediate action. That negative affect and its deflection or rerouting is central to how anti-gender ideology arguments work. And here I want to spend some more time on how this works narratively. I refer to these political and intersubjective techniques as the effective fictions of anti-gender ideology logics, as a way of making clear that feelings do not need to be true to be powerful. In fact, as Eve Sedgwick and Lauren Ballant both make abundantly clear in their work on the draw of heteronormativity, affective investments in a structure that promises more than it will deliver are the very motor of contemporary life. Ballant brilliantly proposes cruel optimism as the best way of explaining the hyperbolic investments in the futurity of naturalized kinship in the face of increased global austerity. For her, this optimism is cruel because it invests in the very promises that kinship cannot deliver uh, and indeed deliver on, and indeed is part of the way in which neoliberalism reproduces itself. Yet if that optimism resides in the hyperinvestment in sex difference and naturalized familial authority as a counter to the disappointments of austerity, its cruelty does not rest there. In anti-gender ideology discourse, it locates the blame and therefore the rage firmly with those who are perceived to have gained from contemporary global shifts the feminists, gay men and lesbians, whose rights seem to trump those of ordinary families and migrants whose claims on a failing welfare state have produced economic insecurity for genuine citizens, the argument goes. The excavation of that terrible wound, which centers a normative family as the subject of the future, even as it laments its imagined displacement in the present, allows the right to depict religious conservatives as an embattled minority. That loss, that heartfelt cry of pain by white heterosexual men as the perceived rolling back at the perceived rolling back of their privileges. These are affects that seem only to intensify with empirical information that proves otherwise. 
It matters little then whether one can point to the ways in which racial, sexual and gender minorities precisely do not experience austerity as a boon. Starting from affect, a narrative requires an uncomfortable encounter with the naked aggression at the heart of attempts to recenter an authoritative masculine subject, one fantastically positioned as though he had lost his place at the heart of power. Kimberly Crenshaw and I both instinctively knew that when encountering the anti-feminism of the man who interrupted the workshop, we had to get him out of the room, not try to persuade him into our way of thinking. It is unlikely that this was a privileged subject in respects other than gender and race, but of course this is precisely Balance's point. His cruel optimism requires a hyperbolic, aggressive affirmation of gendered authority as an affective panacea. That ontological certainty relies on a further powerful affective fiction. That authenticity is always already sutured to sex difference and cannot be claimed otherwise or elsewhere. That is why in anti-gender ideology rhetoric, gender itself is considered a fabrication, an abstraction, a pure fiction, rather than a serious proposition. That's why it can be both dangerous and laughable at the same time. For Joni Cohen, this contrast between the naturalness of sex and the abstraction of gender lies at the heart of the ability to dismiss its politicization of the family and nation. It can be mocked even while it is constructed as all powerful. Indeed, in her perceptive transfeminist analysis, Cohen theorizes gender itself not as an empty signifier, but as a sign of a rootless cosmopolitanism in inverted commas, that precludes the possibility of a stable society. Gender ideology is thus available to be linked to a range of other suspect ideologies and identities through the casting of oppositions between rootedness and flux. For Cohen, this is what links anti-gender ideology campaigns to both anti-Semitism and nationalism. For Sarah Brack and Paternot too, gender ideology is separated from the sphere of reality, leaving only the truth of rooted heterosexual gender roles with their investment in that other real of race as national inheritance. In pitting real sex against fake gender, anti-gender ideology advocates position feminists, queers and foreigners not only as misguided about intimacy and the importance of family as national bedrock, but also, and perhaps even more importantly, as inauthentic. They represent everything that is bankrupt within the current social order, and thus their claims for rights are not only dangerous, but also fundamentally false. Feminists not only peddle lies about gender, they actively deny women and men access to authentic womanhood, if believed. Homosexuality is not only less than heterosexuality, it makes a mockery of it and is at heart a violent failure to embrace the real intimacy of heterosexual complementarity, as we have seen in the French case. In this sense, gender is given the status of a con, one that tricks its proponents and others into devaluing their own bodies, stripping themselves of the possibility of real reciprocity of masculinity and femininity. Gender ideology is undignified and miserable, but it is also selfish and individualist, the opposite of communal social investment in kinship and locale. 
It trades in sad shadows of relationships, providing no stable affective ties, resisting it, sorry, providing no stable affective ties. Resisting it is thus a national duty based in love and care rather than aggression, to paraphrase Sarah Ahmed. There is a similar logic at play in transphobic narratives that the reader will no doubt recognise. Anti-trans arguments have long relied on the opposition between real sex and fake gender in order to underwrite the hostility towards trans subjects uh, as legitimate. And as you might expect, anti-gender ideology advocates are profoundly transphobic, as well as homophobic, misogynist and racist. Self-identified feminists too can be virulently transphobic, reaffirming sex as real and gender as a duplicitous fiction in ways that echo the aggression of anti-gender ideology arguments. Indeed, as Alyosha Tudor has highlighted, the work of trans-exclusionary radical feminists always fails to take seriously trans claims to dignity and self-determination, rendering trans subjects similarly both unreal and predatory, but also a joke. And for Tudor, the connection between these strands of feminist argument and right-wing anti-gender ideology arguments is an important missing piece of the puzzle. Because gender ideology is both unreal and a palpable threat, a mimic and mocker of authentic ties, the people who are its subjects do not have to be respected. And to continue to think of fictions, that inauthentic unreality of gender is precisely how centuries of feminist, queer and anti-racist political work are established as chimeras, figments, ghosts. Even its grammar is elusive in this right-wing discourse. Gender ideology appears to have both agency and no firm ground. Its subjects are deluded and absurd yet powerful. It is everywhere and nowhere and its advocates are mere proponents of its dangerous pseudoscience. The affective fictions of anti-gender ideology discourse there, thereby provide the rationale and alibi for what Elsa Dorlin, following Marilyn Fry, describes as its epistemics of obliteration. Once understood as inauthentic, Dorlin argues, queer lives can be understood as permanently assaultable as well as immoral. They will always be fair game. These epistemics of obliteration mean that anti-gender ideology mobilizations can be framed as responses to violence rather than its agents. And it means that aggression itself is attributed to those who are in fact its targets. Only those who are real, are human in the first place can be assaulted. In her recent book, Imperial Intimacies, Hazel Carby represents the destructive modes of white supremacy that form these affective fictions with searing accuracy, shifting the analytic and political direction from the history of blackness to the question of the lived violence of whiteness. Two examples strike me as particularly helpful for the discussion here. In the first, Carby tells us of her teacher, who insists that the RAF does not have any black people in it. Carby, as a child, knows for a fact that it does. Her black father was in the RAF, but this is irrelevant to her teacher's ignorant certainty. The teacher's knowledge that it does not have any black people in it trumps the girls that it does. Carby uses the phrase the girl to describe her herself in the past. 
Evidence is neither here nor there. In the second, Carby's white poor family embraced superiority over the enslaved black people of the Jamaican plantation as white entitlement, enjoying vicious pleasure at the horror others have to endure. Carby's point here is that the affective life of white supremacy is key to its appeal. It provides a cruel investment in the hierarchies that ultimately also diminish its white working class participants. As Carby's bewildered childhood encounter with her ignorant teacher makes plain, white supremacy cannot be argued with or defeated at the level of logic. It has already identified her as outside of an epistemic frame of intelligibility. Her girlhood knowledge is at once untrustworthy, aggressive and absurd. Three. To conclude, I want to take forward Dorlin and Carby's understandings of the epistemics of obliteration and the affects of white supremacy to think through how to challenge the personal and political violence of anti-gender ideology. How might I do justice to these authors understanding that histories of gender and race are a battle for survival and not an exchange of views, are a struggle to outlive the murderous gaze that imagines itself vulnerable, not a desire for recognition. And finally, how might the question of affective fictions be helpful for a political response that does not cede the terrain of sex, gender, race and sexuality to the right? To do so, I reconsider briefly Gail Rubin's analysis of the sex gender system, reading it as an early analysis of the effects of naturalizing sex and gender, but also as an unfinished account of affect and violence. Rubin's 1975 intervention, The Traffic in Women, notes on the political economy of sex, establishes sex slash gender not as a relationship between the body and the social, as it's sometimes framed, but as a coupling designed to obscure power relations within a patriarchal system. For Rubin, it is the collapse of gender into sex, into sex, that the naturalization of their relationship as no relationship at all, that secures inequality as a fact of life rather than as a regime that systematically benefits men over women. In traffic, Rubin is concerned both with that naturalization mechanism, the collapse of gender into sex, and with its impact on those who fall outside of its norms or refuse them. We have to make visible that sex gender system, Rubin says, if we are to challenge the naturalization process that reduces human life to exchange, and if we are to value the lives of those who cannot or refuse to be thus contained. I read Rubin as an early theorist of the relationship between sex and gender as a pernicious fiction, one that all gendered subjects must accept in order to be legible as men or women within patriarchal regimes. This is, of course, an affective regime too, if sex is understood as pure and unadulterated, as without the corrupting presence of gender, its violence is obscured and can no longer be rationalised as violence. Instead, as we have seen, violence sticks to those who appear disruptive of a system whose workings have already been smoothed over. It is a sex gender system, in other words, that allows for the aggression of anti-gender ideology mobilizations to be displaced and for vulnerability to remain the preserve of the privileged. 
This is also an effective fiction then, in that the cloaking of the mechanisms of authority enable anger at its exposure to be righteous and disgust at those who refuse its terms to be justified. Rubin's account also goes some way to explaining why both agency and objection stick to those at the margins. Within a sex gender system, legitimate affect can only belong to those who occupy its naturalized positions. Challenging the contemporary rights campaign to renaturalize power then has to start from both debunking that legitimacy and insisting on the value of those lives whose affects bubble up in excess of that regime. Rubin has been critiqued for privileging sex gender as a system over race gender, for example, as a determining system of patriarchal societies and thereby naturalizing colonial or imperial regimes in turn, rather than opening them up to scrutiny. And indeed, as Hortense Spillers and Gail Lewis have laid out in Western contexts, only white women can historically and contemporarily lay claim to womanhood and its affects without ambivalence at best and often deadly violence. Not only are black women and women of color more likely to be understood as aggressive than white women, because of rather than despite being more likely to be the targets of violence if we follow this analysis, they are also denied access to womanhood within a sex gender system. For Carby, however, the racialization of a sex gender system is in fact central to how it works. If womanhood is naturalized through rather than in parallel to whiteness, then its impact is to demonize all those who fail to allow that naturalization to remain invisible and punish all those who refuse that demonization. In White Woman Listen, Carby not only provides a useful extension of Rubin's analysis of a sex gender system to center the colonial logics of racism, she also provides a basis for thinking about the political and affective marginalization of black people, people of color, queer, trans and feminist subjects together and those who might be all the above. Thinking with Rubin via Carby then allows us to explore the affective as well as political and social work that naturalization does. But it also cracks open the links between different political responses as part of how we might imagine solidarity across different denaturalized and denaturalizing positions. In an interview for Feminist Theory, Gail Lewis reflects on her decades of political work as a black feminist in the UK. Echoing Dorlin's insistence on understanding right-wing anti-gender ideology as a confrontation with epistemic obliteration, Lewis is clear that the right has her and others in its deadly sights. They're going to kill us, she says. They are killing us, as a matter of fact. For Lewis, the violence of white male supremacy is not only an external force, but also one that shapes what it means to be oneself in the world. Lewis tells us that, quote, it was hard for me to come out as a black woman, as a lesbian, unquote, remarking wryly that, quote, I suppose when you're excised from full humanity, that's one of its consequences, unquote. Lewis is not making a case for being recognized or granted entry to womanhood on authoritarian terms, though. She sees the problem as precisely rooted in the binary oppositions that anti-gender ideology movements propose as the basis of a rosy future, insisting that it kills us to occupy these positions as men and women. 
Here Lewis connects, like Carby, black, trans, queer and feminist exclusions through their continuous failure to be counted as full women or men, but importantly sees the costs of seeking entry into those as just as damaging. In an extended discussion of the racial dynamics that shape feminism, that shape feminism, Lewis continues to explore the affective costs of occupying or being excluded from womanhood. Starting from her own experience on feminist collectives, Lewis describes, quote, how unbearable it is when you're with some white women and the question of race comes up and the white women will collapse into tears like a classic performance of the fey little woman who's not strong enough, like a little bird, she might faint, unquote. In her trenchant analysis, Lewis points precisely to the sex gender system as always already racialized. As a black woman, she is not able to retreat into femininity and is marked instead and predictably as the aggressor. White femininity for Lewis is constituted through the threat of an assault, whether by white or black men or by black women. It is constituted by the displacement of racist violence and exclusion onto the other. And as a black feminist, that is simply unbearable. <clears throat> for Lewis, the confrontation with fantasies of victimhood as part of how a sex gender system maintains itself must be the first thing we undo as part of a creative politics of freedom, though this, of course, will be a different project for white and black feminists. Otherwise, one continues to see oneself through the eyes of the white male supremacist. A refusal to accept the affective fictions that underpin anti-gender ideology requires a leap of affective faith in its own right. Yet, of course, we're not starting from scratch. There is and always has been excess and resistance, and our lives are never fully encompassed and limited by all these processes and structures. As Lewis notes, it is frightening, but that's the project, isn't it? We have to, she says. Here Lewis joins Rubin and Carby in returning us to the scene of sex gender as both an important political focus with, respects to with respect to structures of violence and as a way of understanding affective lives that separate and connect those it excludes. Her call is to refuse the empty, cruel perhaps, promises of sex gender, refuse it as a devastating fiction and align with affects rooted in histories of political action and affirmation. At the end of the Interrupted Intersectionality and Politics workshop, Kimberly Crenshaw asks us to breathe, to pause, to feel our bodies, to inhabit that space and no other space, to be real. She asks us to go back and to remember what happened step by step and to finish it, leave it alone, pay it no more mind and then to imagine something else, to replay the scene of being silenced, rewriting it as we would have liked it to unfold, and to take that with us into the world. We know authentic intimacy because it is hard won. We can feel it in our encounters with others. We know the sham in which violence is passed off as kinship, and we do not accept its terms. We see each other, and we already bask in the pleasure of a new world.